Welcome to Count Me In with Della and Deanna. Today we have an exciting conversation with Dr. Erica Flatman, the Editor-in-Chief of the Notices of the American Mathematical Society, the official magazine of this society that is distributed to more than 30,000 colleagues every month. Erica earned her PhD from the University of Madison, Wisconsin, and served on the faculty at Pomona College for 32 years. While there, she authored and co-authored several books. The titles of two of them show her breadth as a mathematician, When Topology Meets Chemistry, and number theory, a lively introduction with proofs, applications, and stories. The Mathematical Association of America has recognized Erica's teaching with the HIMO Award, and the Association for Women in Mathematics celebrated her outstanding mentorship of women with the Gwyneth Humphreys Award. In this conversation, you will hear about the power of a personal refrain, the role of a supportive family, and the importance of discovering and leveraging personal skills. So please join us as we talk with Dr. Erica Flappen. Hi, Erica. Hi. Hi. Yay. Welcome to our podcast. I'm happy to be here. We like to start, Erica, with asking you to tell us your story. Little Erica went to a really, really weird uh, elementary school, <laughs> which did not prepare her at all for anything that followed. But she, I'm going to switch to I, it's hard to <laughs> the third person, um, but I got very accelerated in math because that's what I was interested in. Mm-hmm. And because of that, I, when I ended up in a regular junior high and high school, not doing well in any subject except for math, I decided I had to go into math mm-hmm. and that feeling that that was my only choice. I wasn't good at anything else is what kept me in despite various obstacles. Mm-hmm. And then you, you studied in, in high school and became more focused in math. And how did you decide to go to college or where? Well, that back in the day, there was no internet. And I went to Hamilton College in upstate New York because a girl in my apartment building went there. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you couldn't really find out about colleges, except, you know, you would have these huge books like the 100 top colleges or whatever. Mm-hmm. But they all sounded good. And I didn't have any help. We didn't have a guidance counselor. My parents weren't involved. So the girl who lived upstairs, who majored in music and didn't take any math, <laughs> Liked it. So I went there. <laughs> Where was this? Where were you? Was this in New York City? Yeah, New York State. It was in upstate New York. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'd gotten a region scholarship, which meant that as long as I went to school somewhere in New York State, it paid some amount. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah. And this girl was three years older than me. So she'd okay. already been going there. Um, she had gone to my high school and lived in my building. So was your family supportive of you studying math and going to college? Uh, not of studying math. I mean, they were supportive of my going to college, definitely. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know that my mother had an opinion about math. My father would always say the last math I took was trigonometry, and I haven't used it a day in my ha- <laughs> a day in my life. <laughs> um, he would also say things like. Math is for people who want to run away from reality. So, yeah. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) So what was it like at Hamilton College? So I actually, just to break that down a little more, didn't go to Hamilton College. I just lied to you. Mm -hmm. I went to Kirkland College, which was the sister school of Hamilton College, which uh, Hamilton went co-ed the year after I graduated. Mm -hmm. They announced it like a week before graduation. Um, so, so because of that, uh, I think there were even fewer girls in my math classes than would have been the case if I'd gone to a school that was already co-ed, um, because most of the girls at Kirkland went there with the idea of focusing on a subject that Kirkland was strong in. I should say that when Kirkland was built, which was in the mid sixties as a sister school to Hamilton, the idea was that they wouldn't replicate what existed at Hamilton. They would only develop departments that were in complementary disciplines. So, so they had, they didn't have languages, but they had comparative lit. They didn't have math, but they had computer science. Um, they didn't have science, but they had history of science. Mm-hmm. So anyway, 
Um, I didn't really know about this or whatever. Um, when I went there, I think it's possible that other people who went there had more help than I did in deciding where to go to college. So I didn't really realize that I was going there with the intention of majoring in a Hamilton subject and that most people going to Kirkland wouldn't be doing that, wouldn't wouldn't go there with the idea of majoring in a subject that mm -hmm. wasn't one of the Kirkland subjects. So so I didn't have any any girls in any of my math classes starting freshman year. So you took everything at Hamilton? Only the math courses. Oh, then, only the math classes. Okay, what was that like? Um, it was challenging in some ways because, like, I had one teacher my freshman year, first semester of freshman year, who was an um, older man who retired the following year, who always addressed the class as boys. You boys, I know you'd rather be going and playing football than doing your homework, but blah, 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 you boys. And I was sitting right there in the front row, um, but that didn't phase him at all. Hmm. So, so yeah, there were challenges like that. Um, after the first exam, I didn't do so well, meaning I think I got like a B, but I was used mm -hmm. to math was my only subject where I would do really well. Mm -hmm. And I was upset and I went to him to talk and he said, you know, maybe you shouldn't be studying math. Oh. And then I started crying. And I think that reinforced forced his idea that I shouldn't be studying math. Uh -huh. But, um, but then I went back to my dorm and I did the same refrain that I did at various stages in my career. Math is my only choice. I'd have to do this. I can't do anything else. So <laughs> did, did you find support there? Did you how did you end up in graduate school if you. So I did. This guy retired. Mm -hmm. um, I eventually in my junior year, there was a woman who joined the math department who was very supportive. And there were also a couple of male faculty members who were very supportive to me as well. Mm -hmm. um, and one of the male faculty members had done his graduate work at the University of Wisconsin, and he felt strongly that that would be a good choice for me. Mm -hmm. Again, there was no internet. <laughs> so you just listened to what your professor suggested about where to go to graduate school. Mm -hmm. So um, anyway, so yeah, so he was encouraging I had a different professor who was my senior thesis uh, supervisor who was encouraging. And then there was a woman who was also very encouraging. Mm -hmm. So before we go on to graduate school, let me take a step backwards and ask, um, you know, the, the late Fred Rogers used to say that we should look for the helpers in our neighborhood. So when you were young and growing up, who were the helpful people? Who was who someone who really stood out? It was like, this person helped me along in my career, along in my life, supported me as I was growing older. It does not have to be a family member. It might be just a neighbor or someone uh, in your school. So when I was in this unusual um, elementary school, lab school, I had a teacher who taught a combined fifth, sixth grade, and I was in his class for two years. And um, he was very encouraging. I mean, the curriculum, there was no curriculum. You did what you wanted and you were available for experiments from the education researchers. Um, so I wanted to do math and he thought that was great. And he encouraged me and believed in me. And that made a difference to me. Mm -hmm. And at some point I ran out of math books, workbooks that they had. And then he hooked me up with some uh, people working with a computer. This is a long time ago. This is 1968. <laughs> the computer was this huge thing that filled a whole room. And I would go and meet with them and talk to them. He arranged for that. So that was that was nice of him. And then when I was in high school, there was another teacher who was actually my history, English and art history professor, um, who also I became close to. And um, he talked to me outside of class and was very helpful to me. I did have a, a woman um, math teacher who she was also very encouraging. She was she was rather elderly. Mm -hmm. um, and she was, you know, great as a teacher, but I don't think, I think um, I stopped having her as a teacher when I was, I don't know, in ninth or 10th grade. And so, and I didn't continue seeing her. So, so starting in junior high, I went up to the high school to take math. Mm -hmm. So, um, so I did have her for a couple of years, but after that, not so much. 
she, you know, she seemed very nice and encouraging, but I didn't have as much contact with her as I did with this humanities uh, teacher. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So I know that you have a style with your own students as you've been a professor that you really um, are really interested in their lives and talking to them about who they are as people. And I was just wondering if there was anyone in your own past who had that same sort of interest and that same sort of conversation. Did you get that style from someone else or was that just, has that always been just you? So I would say both. So this, this guy in high school who I had, um, you know, for English history, art history, um, he definitely took an interest in me. Um, and in a particular at a time when, uh, I wasn't doing so well psychologically because of family issues. Mm -hmm. Um, and that was very important to me. Mm -hmm. Um, I believe he was fired for being gay eventually. This is again, a long time ago. Wow. Um, and I lost contact with him, uh -huh. um, when there was no internet. <laughs> so, so, but I also think, um, my personality is that I'm very interested in other people, um, students, but also people in general. If you people talk to me, I want to learn more about who they are. Also, I think that um, one of my gifts is to be able to um, sort of understand things from inside somebody else's head. Mm -hmm. So when students come to me for advice, I don't have any preconceived advice for mm -hmm. them. Mm -hmm. I don't go with like, oh, well, you should go to grad school. So you should take these classes. It's more like I, I think about them and I try to ask them questions. And what what are you interested in? What do you like doing and what matters to you and and so on? And through that, I'll sort of help them arrive at where they should be going. So just because someone's a top student doesn't mean they should go to graduate school or conversely, just because someone isn't a top student doesn't mean they shouldn't go to grad school. So, so I really just try to understand what is important to them and then help them figure that out. And I think it's sort of, this is also one of my gifts as a teacher that I'm able to hopefully figure out what it is that they don't understand instead of just like, oh, well, you can't do this problem. Well, here's how you do it. It's like to try to understand what about it is it that's giving them difficulty. Mm -hmm. And so I think it's the same type of thing. But I think that I do have an underlying interest in people mm -hmm. and in learning about people from very, very different backgrounds from mine. Mm -hmm. um, and it, I'm just interested and I, and I want to hear their experience from their own words. Yeah, that's great. It's, it's so much fun getting to know other people deeply and in a personal way and, and making connections like that. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Okay, you were at Kirkland slash Hamilton. Your professor suggested you go to Wisconsin. There was no internet for you to know about anywhere else. So I mean, I did, apply to to I did apply to other schools. Um, for example, I got into Berkeley, but they wouldn't guarantee me support beyond the first year, which might have been typical at the time, whereas Wisconsin guaranteed me, guaranteed me four years of support. Mm -hmm. And that combined with the fact that my professor thought I should go to Wisconsin, you know, helped. I applied to other places, too, but I actually don't really remember. <laughs> How did you find Wisconsin at that time? Um, well, uh, it was very challenging. Mm -hmm. I I was um, coming from a small school that did not offer a lot of upper division math classes mm -hmm. that did not have a lot of math majors. And of the math majors, very few went to math graduate school. Mm -hmm. So and I didn't really know that my preparation was weak when I went to grad school. There was no Internet. Um, and so I went there and was surprised to discover among the first year students that lots of people had had like two semesters of topology or whatever. Like there was all this stuff that they all knew, or it seemed like they all knew it and I didn't. Um, so that was a shock to me. Mm -hmm. My back then, I think uh, everything was booming. There were, there were just schools were much bigger. There were 40 in my incoming class of the 40, three of us were women. The other two dropped out within a couple of weeks. So I didn't even really get to know them before they dropped out. Um, 
And, you know, there were sort of the usual uh, show offs <laughs> who, who spoke a lot in class and who made me feel worse. <laughs> right. Um, so so it was definitely challenging. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it was also uh, a challenge for anyone coming from a small school with, where your faculty take a personal interest in you to a big university where the faculty don't interact that much with the graduate students and don't even necessarily know your name. Um, and it's not normal to go to a faculty member to ask for help. So um, so that was also challenging. So can you talk to us about how you addressed that challenge, how you faced it? What did you do to find your own support group, your own community, so that you felt like you belonged in graduate school? Um, first of all, I always had that refrain in my head. I belong to grad school in math because I can't do anything else. Mm-hmm. At some point, I thought, well, I could always be a high school math teacher. But mm-hmm. then I remembered how my high school math classes were so awful because most of the kids were like throwing spitballs <laughs> and like not at all interested in the subject. And the mm-hmm. teacher was forever having to send people to the principal's office. And that didn't seem like fun at all. Mm-hmm. So I thought I needed to teach at the college level. Um, but uh, I did I did become friends with some of the older graduate students um, in part, well, in various ways. One way is that we were TAs and we were in big groups. So there was like calculus one, there would be maybe 350 students with like seven TAs. And we were expected to attend the lectures, but we didn't really listen. We would sit in the back of the room and talk or whatever. So, and those people would be of all ages. I mean, Mm -hmm. grad students of all ages. You were also in an office with eight people who would be of all ages. Mm -hmm. Um, And then, and then I began attending in my second year, I think I began attending the topology seminar. And so um, I met some of the older grad students there. And, and I guess one other thing is that I was involved in an eating co-op sort of like a co-op house, except it was just for food. Um, and <laughs> there like were kind a lo- of place. <laughs> exactly. There were, well, it was cheap. It wasn't necessarily fancy, but in any case, uh, there were a lot of grad students who were members of the eating co-op, some of who were in math. Mm-hmm. So, so the point is that I did get to know quite a few older graduate students. I don't think I met any women who were older grad students. Wow. Um, but but in any case, so among them, I began to um, socialize and become friends. And so if I had a question, I would never go to the professor. I would go to an older student. Mm-hmm. So so like I knew people in each field, like people who were doing their dissertation in a field. So I would figure they would know how to answer a question in first or second year class. Oh, nice. Uh-huh. So uh-huh. so that's what I would do. Mm-hmm. Erica, since I don't know what an eating co-op is, I'm going to guess a lot of our listeners don't. So would you mind telling us about what an eating co-op actually is? Sure. So so this is actually interesting. So my eating co-op was called the Green Lanterns. I'll refer to it that way. It was formed by a number of uh, GIs at the end of World War II. So all male who came back and were on the GI Bill going to school and they didn't want to cook, I guess. And so they had this idea um, and what it was is it was that there was one employee, which was the cook, because you want to make sure the food was decent and otherwise everything, people had different jobs. So, so someone helped to draw up menus. Someone went to buy food at the farmer's market or the supermarket. Um, Someone uh, figured out, like who was going to come where, so, when, so that we would know how many to cook for, because not everyone went there for all. It didn't serve breakfast, but lunch and dinner. Not everyone went for all their lunches and dinners. Um, there would be someone who was in charge of um, getting people who weren't doing one of these higher level jobs to like wash dishes or set the table or do simple things like that. Um, That was actually my job for a long time because it turned out that I was good at getting people to work. Um, So I would like keep track of who had done. You were supposed to do one job for every four meals you ate. 
So I would keep track of that and would be like, oh, Deanna, you know, it's great you've been coming, but I noticed that anyway. So I was apparently good at that. And it was also a job that nobody wanted to do to try to get other people to work. But um, but anyway, yeah. So so I, I mean, I did various jobs, but that was the one that I did for the longest. So after graduate school, continue on with your story. So I became a postdoc at Rice University, uh, where I was for two years. And then I spent one more year as a postdoc at um, University of California at Santa Barbara, where they had what they called a special year in low dimensional topology, my area, which meant they were trying to collect a lot of temporary people in the area. So we would have like a critical mass Mm -hmm. to work together and so on. And then I'd always intended to um, end up teaching at a small liberal arts college. So uh, so that was what I wanted to do. And I was applying that year. In the meantime, the summer after my first year at the postdoc, I met my husband, uh, Francis Bonahan, and we decided that we wanted to get married, be together. Uh, I guess be together comes before get married. But in any case, uh, and we wanted to live in the U.S. It wasn't really a possibility for me to live in France. Mm-hmm. I didn't speak French. I also, Wisconsin wasn't elite enough to get a job in France. But anyway, um, and he really wanted to teach somewhere where he could have graduate students. And I wanted to be at a small college. Mm-hmm. And so we applied to pairs of schools all over the country. Mm-hmm. And he ended up at the University of Southern California and I ended up at Pomona. Was that was that challenging to find positions together? Or was it? Uh, yes. You know, talk to us about that process. So, um, yeah. So, so there was no internet, as I <laughs> is the refrain here. So we didn't really know very much about schools, but except for what we happened to know and could locate catalogs and stuff like that. And so um, we created these lists that would be sort of in the same places. Um, and he began to get offers before I did. He was uh, very established. He's not much older, but the French system is such that essentially you're starting grad school right out of high school. Mm-hmm. Um, and so he was very established and had a permanent position in France as a researcher with no teaching um, at a wonderful university. who's at the University of Orsay outside of Paris. And he was giving that up to come to the U.S. Mm -hmm. Um, However, people in the U.S. thought that he was coming to the U.S. to get like the best position he could, as opposed to coming to the U.S. so we could be together and we could both be happy. Mm -hmm. And so what began happening is he would get an offer from somewhere and then I would be pressured to let him take that offer. So the first one of those the and we were both in topology, so we knew the same people. Um, the person in his field, uh, closest to his field, whatever, called me after after Francis got an offer uh-huh. and said, "You know, you should let him take this job because you can get a job at the Catholic school down the street. All of the wives work at the Catholic school down the street." <laughs> and I was like. I didn't apply to any Catholic schools or any other religious schools. I don't Uh want to be at such a place. Uh And I'm not sure that the Catholic school down the street really appreciates the idea that they will just hire the wives of whoever you want to hire. Right. I didn't say all that. That's what I thought. Yes. (laughs) Um, (laughs) I didn't say any of that. But anyway, um, so and there wasn't a good pairing for me there. Mm -hmm. And so Francis didn't take that job. And then he got another offer from a completely different place, not near the Catholic school down the street. And the person in my field called me there again. And this time he said, why don't you let your husband take this job in our department? Uh, You can be a permanent adjunct. And I was like, I don't want to be a permanent adjunct. Mm -hmm. I might have actually said that to him. I want to be at a small college where teaching is, is valued. And so we didn't go there. And then the sort of possibly strangest one was there were there were just a couple of schools that we both applied to because we really wanted to be in that location. And so I got a call from one of those schools. Francis didn't get a call. I got a call 
And they said, the, the guy said, we'd like to interview you. And I said, okay, well, my husband and I have an agreement that when any either of us gets an interview, we tell the interviewer about the other one to see if there could be a possibility of having a second position. Mm -hmm. And he said, well, what's his name? And he said, okay, I'll call you back in like 10 minutes after I look up his file. Mm -hmm. So in 10 minutes, he called me back and he said, we looked up his file and we've decided that we don't want to interview you, but we do want to interview him. (laughs) So we didn't go on that interview. (laughs) So, yeah. Oh, wow. Um, okay. But eventually USC and Pomona must have aligned somehow. They aligned. I mean, actually, I got the offer from Pomona before Francis got the one at USC. He'd interviewed there, but the bureaucracy at USC is much greater than at Pomona. And Pomona only wanted to give me a week. And it seemed like the department was interested, but whatever, it had mm-hmm. to make all these stages at USC. And I didn't know what to do because it didn't seem like it was going to happen in time. But with the grapevine the way it is, somebody at Pomona knew someone at USC in the administration, and they found out that there was going to be an offer coming, but it might take a month. (laughs) So Pomona actually gave me a month. I mean, I told them that that was our first choice, assuming his offer came through. Mm -hmm. And so they knew about his offer before we did. And so they gave me a month and then we did, we did go there. That's wonderful. Yeah. These were, I mean, you were on the forefront of what's known as the two body problem. I mean, now it's much more common, but you all were really like making the wedge. So So in fact, if I just can interrupt for a second, in fact, um, I was very discouraged by the fact that a number of couples that I knew where they were both in math, um, I would see them doing exactly what these people who called me wanted me to do. Mm-hmm. So, so the guy would accept a job at a very prestigious place. The guy was always further along than the woman, and then she would give up math. And mm-hmm. so I knew of I knew of a number of people like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I didn't want to do that. And Francis didn't want me to do that either. He said if he wanted to have the best possible job, he would have stayed at Orsay. Mm-hmm. He wanted us both to be happy. Oh, that's great. Mm-hmm. So kudos to Francis. Yes, kudos. So Erica, I heard you say that you're in low dimensional topology. So we have a lot of students listening to this podcast who are not going to know what that means. So could you talk to us in lay people's terms about what low dimensional topology means or your research in particular? So, so first of all, low dimensional means two dimension two or three, as opposed to higher dimension. Um, but my research, originally, I was studying symmetries of knots, like knots, like in your shoelace. I got involved with applications of um, symmetries and topology to chemistry. So uh, um, the issue is that some molecules are big enough that they are flexible. The bigger a molecule is, the more flexible. So you can think of DNA as a very, very large molecule and it's quite flexible. And the question is, what are the symmetries of such a molecule? And the chemists mostly work with small molecules that are rigid. And in order to determine the symmetries, they can make like a plastic model and turn it around and so on. But if a, but if a molecule is flexible, then it's not as easy to recognize the symmetries. And topology is the study of what is sometimes known as rubber sheet geometry, meaning you can stretch and bend and flex and all that. And so this the study of these types of um, large flexible molecules fell very nicely in the area of topology, which I was interested in. Mm -hmm. And symmetries are very important in chemistry. And that's also what I was interested in. Mm -hmm. So that's um, how I got interested in that. And then over the years, I've moved a little more towards molecular biology. So originally I was, my my applied work had to do with um, small synthetic molecules that, that are, they're not that small, they're big enough to be flexible, but they're not like DNA or proteins. And gradually, I became more involved with DNA and proteins, which are more flexible and which, in a certain sense, are more relevant to our lives than these um, sort of interesting molecules that are being synthesized that 
mm-hmm. um, at some point might have applications, but are not are not applied at this point. Mm-hmm. Um, so, for example, uh, I've been working in the area of proteins where some proteins have knots in them and knots can be very important in either causing disease or preventing disease. So, um, you know, so for example, there's a, um, a protein that's called uh, ubiquitin hydrolase, which uh, is implicated in Parkinson's disease, um, where if this molecule degrades, it can lead to Parkinson's disease. But normally the molecule has a knot. So in this case, a knot is a good thing. And the knot prevents the molecule from passing through this small pore, this hole, which would cause it to degrade. Mm -hmm. So if you think about it, if you have a knot in your thread, it can't pass through the needle. And so the knot is a good thing. Mm -hmm. So, but, but in fact, uh, molecular biologists don't really know very much about why molecules knot and why some do or some don't or um, very much at all, other than the fact that they, that a lot of molecules or maybe not a lot, but some large number of proteins, uh, do have knots in them. Anyway, I'm interested in that. Mm-hmm. So nice. Erica, if your interest is in topology, tell me how you came to write a book on number theory with your two colleagues. Oh, well, so that's funny. Basically what happened is I wrote a book called when topology meets chemistry and that book came out the first year after a colleague was hired in my department, Jamie Palmersheim, who is a number theorist. And he he and his friend, Tim Marks, had been teaching number theory at CTY, the Center for Talented Youth, for years and years and years. They had started teaching, I think, when they were 16, (laughs) uh, after having been campers there previously. Mm -hmm. And they had developed this set of notes for teaching number theory without a book. And they had the idea of making it into a book, but they had been having that idea for some time and couldn't quite get it together to do so. And then they saw, or Jamie, who was in my department, saw that I wrote this book in just a few years and it was published. And they said, okay, we need someone like you to make this book happen. Um, And so I said, I don't know any number theory. Um, and they said, well, that's okay. You can just be the organizing person. Um, so it's anyway. your food co-op skills. Coming yeah, I was just going to say you're good at people get to get, what did you say? You're good at p- getting people to people, work. Yeah. That's what they, they wanted me to do to get them to work. But in any case, so yeah, so we did, uh, work on it. It wasn't quite as convenient as, uh, it was originally because Jamie left my department and um, and so he and Tim ended up both being in at UC San Diego for a while. So I would go down there periodically to work with them on it. Mm-hmm. So you are not teaching anymore. You okay. uh, retired. And could you talk to us about what you're doing now? So I'm the editor in chief of the notices of the American Mathematical Society. Um, it's Uh, the membership magazine of the society, which goes to almost 30,000 people worldwide. Um, It's uh, the most widely read math magazine in the world. Uh, It's a monthly magazine, except it only has 11 months, but in any case. (laughs) um, And so I'm the editor in chief. I have 13 associate editors who help me each sort of with a different area of expertise that they carry out. But I sort of um, shaped the whole thing and am very involved with it. Uh, and I love it. What have you learned from that experience? I guess I'm good at getting people to do things. <laughs> <laughs> I'm joking. Uh, one thing I've learned is that, you know, you can learn something new when you're in your sixties. I know if students are listening to this, they think they're probably going to be dead by the time they're in their sixties, but actually some most people I think live until their sixties and you can learn something new. And I didn't really know that I could because I'd been teaching at Pomona college for 32 years. And um, then someone nominated me for this job. I don't know who, and I didn't think I was qualified, but I was chosen and it was a bit difficult in the beginning. I didn't know anything about uh, being an editor Mm -hmm. Uh, I'd edited a number of books, but that's really quite different. 
Um, and so it was it was very challenging, but it's been very fun. And, you know, I, I think one of the most fun aspects is that it's so creative. That is that it's kind of up to me with the help of my associated editors to shape what goes in it, what types of articles, what style of articles, what types of authors, what combination of things. It's it's so wide open that um, that it's just very exciting. Mm-hmm. You have uh, throughout your career, you've been involved in a number of different things. You've published books, you've taught, you've now been the editor, you have a family. Um, I wanted to talk to you a moment about how you balance those things. How is it that you make the decision about what takes priority at that point in your life or uh, on any given day in your life? How do you find time for the different things you want to do and prioritize them? I don't think I have a good answer to that. (laughs) Uh, So so things that have deadlines end up having priority. Mm -hmm. With the notices, it's a monthly and there's always deadlines. They don't take vacations for Christmas or anything. So I have to know that I'm on top of everything before I move on to something else. And in particular, that the right number of articles are coming in at a reasonable time or I have to shuffle things around. So that ends up taking priority. Um, When I was teaching, which was before I started doing the notices work, uh, teaching took priority because the same thing, it was happening. (laughs) You couldn't postpone teaching your class. Um, so research would take a back seat, but then, you know, the research is there and I do get, um, swept up into it. So when I start on a project or, you know, even it's an ongoing project, but I start today on, you know, whatever part of it, and then I get really focused and time can fly by. Um, and so, you know, I definitely, do my research. Of course, when uh, you brought up family, when, when my daughter was little, um, she was of course the priority. There was no question about that, but you know, but I was commuting and I was teaching and all this stuff. It was, it was challenging. Mm -hmm. Um, Right now I'm helping to take care of my grandchildren um, who, who do go to daycare, but I bring them to daycare every day and I pick up pick them up from daycare at four and I take care of them until six every day. So I don't make any appointments for that time or Mm -hmm, plan mm -hmm. to do anything because that's what I'm focused on is them. Are you teaching Uh, them any mathematics? No. (laughs) (laughs) So, So, you know, when my daughter was little, I really didn't want her to be bored in school. So mm-hmm. I didn't want to teach her like addition or something that they were going to learn. Mm-hmm. I would teach her things that I thought were either fun or useful. So when she was four, um, she really wanted to know when I would pick her up from daycare. And so I gave her a watch and taught her to tell time at four. Mm-hmm. And in order to teach her how to tell time, I first taught her how to count by fives. Um And so then, so it wasn't like with the intention of getting ahead at that point, I didn't even know what age children normally are taught to tell time. And it turned out in her elementary school, they taught it in third grade. She'd been wearing a watch since she was four, you know, so I, so I did teach her that. And then, you know, other things as they came up, I could, you know, explain to her what a Mobius strip was or something. Um, She would also sometimes hear my husband and I talking about mathematical things or other friends coming over and talking about it. So she was exposed to it, but I did go out of my way not to try to get her um, ahead in school. She was gifted in math. So she was already sort of um, accelerated, but I thought it was better not to make it worse. Mm -hmm. So Erica, all these experiences have meant that you've been a part of a lot of different kinds of communities So we wondered if you could talk to us about places where you felt like you belonged and places where you didn't feel like you belonged or just choose one of those and why. Um, Well, let's talk about SMP, the summer math program, which was organized and run by Deanna Hounsberger and Steve Kennedy, um, which I was lucky enough to get invited to teach at in 2000. And I felt really at home in the program. I felt like 
I really care about women. This is a program for women. It's a program where there's, it's understood that the women will be mentored by the instructors. I love mentoring. Um, you know, I loved getting to know the students outside of class. So that was good. But I also felt like I was part of the team of instructors, directors, and teaching assistants. So it was a community within the community. Mm-hmm. Um, so I should say, actually, before I was invited to teach at SMP, which was in 2000, in 1994, I taught at a different program for women in math that was at Berkeley. Uh, that subsequently stopped existing at some point. And I didn't feel like this there at all. Uh, I felt at Berkeley, it was Berkeley. You know, people had offices spread all over. We weren't all together. The students didn't all take the same classes. They chose classes. Uh, We lived in an apartment or actually a house far away from campus. You know, it was like I went and I taught my classes and I had my office hours And there might have been one or two social events during the six-week program. I can't really remember. So I didn't feel like that at all, even though I really did enjoy teaching women. You know, I didn't feel like I had that much of a relationship with the students outside of the classroom. So it wasn't that different from normal teaching. Mm -hmm. Um, but I really felt like that when I went to SMP the first time. And in fact, I basically invited myself to come back the next summer. (laughs) Didn't really occur to me that that it was not up to me. We were very happy to have you. You really understood the philosophy of the program and, and getting people, um, to be, to see each other as part of a community and building this community that would outlast the summer. And you really understood that well. So we were happy to have you back a number of different years. Thank you. And I should say another thing that made a difference to me about SMP is that I felt like my daughter was included, mm-hmm. not with the students, but with uh, Deanna and Steve's children, that mm-hmm. she was part of her own little community mm-hmm. where, where it wasn't like, like normally at home, she was in daycare or some kind of day camp in the summer where what she was doing was completely separate from what we were doing. Um, But here she, you know, she was part of the group. So when we would go on excursions, she would be with us as would uh, Deanna's kids. Mm -hmm. And so that I think really made me feel more comfortable. And my husband, you know, did his own work and it went to a colloquium and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. And he felt like he was part of it Mm -hmm. and he enjoyed the excursions too. So it really felt like our whole family was part of the community each in our own way, Mm -hmm. um, which I think was really good. Like back home when I was teaching Pomona and he was teaching at USC, we were each commuting 25 miles in opposite directions. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And only rarely would we, um, would the two of us socialize with people from our respective schools. Like I might have lunch with people at Pomona and he might have lunch with people at USC, Mm -hmm. but we weren't really part of the same community. Um, so, so I think that made me, you know, really happy. It was a perfect fit. Mm -hmm. That's lovely. So we could have another podcast on Deanna Hounsberger and Steve Kennedy's, uh, extraordinary ability to create space for people to feel loved and cared for and welcomed. We'll put that on the agenda another time, but I agree with that assessment. And I think a lot of it has to do with their, they how the let's just say the things that shaped them in their lives that made them uh, very welcoming to lots of different kinds of people before it was popular to even talk about that. Now we talk about that, but they were living it before it became a thing. You know, another thing I want to say about SMP as opposed to Pomona is that um, at Pomona, I think the students were very attracted to the most charismatic lecturers. That's what they wanted to go to. Mm -hmm. They wanted someone who was going to put on a show. And my teaching style is not really that. I want to be more interactive with the students. And I felt like that was really supported at SMP. And it wasn't maybe because the students didn't get to choose who their teachers were, so they didn't choose the most charismatic lecturers or whatever, that that I got away from that kind of what I would call popularity contest, Mm -hmm. um, which which I was happy about. And that my teaching style, which involved a lot of group work and student presentations, 
was really respected and um, valued. Let's, uh, I'm, I'm blushing here. No one can tell. <laughs> um, let me take a turn and ask you, um, how do you take care of yourself? You know, we're always so busy and we're running to and fro and we're taking care of others and taking care of our family. And we have to be mindful about making sure that we make time for ourselves to keep ourselves healthy uh, mentally and physically. And I was just wondering, what do you do to take care of yourself, Erica? So I exercise every day um, as I've gotten older. It isn't quite as vigorous as when I was younger, but has been very helpful. Yeah. Um, you know, then I have like one of my weaknesses is that I love sweets. Mm -hmm. And so at some point I got into baking and I got into um, making my own ice cream. So I do those things, not not rigidly for 30 minutes a day, <laughs> but but periodically and I enjoy it. and. I enjoy doing it, but I also enjoy the the outcome of it. <laughs> so so that's also relaxing, mm -hmm. you know, but but I have to say also, I have a very close bond with my daughter and with my grandchildren. Mm -hmm. So I find that also uh, very wonderful as a way to just um, enjoy the time. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm not saying that it wasn't stressful when my daughter was young, there were definitely periods that was, were stressful, um, particularly because I was commuting 25 miles each direction. Mm -hmm. Um, but, but the closeness I've had with her since she was born is just really, really wonderful. And I feel the same way about the grandchildren. Mm -hmm. So I also do get sustenance from that. And of course, there's also my husband. And <laughs> So, so now with both of us um, not teaching anymore, we, we take walks every evening, which is very nice. If only the mosquitoes would take their walk away from us. But anyway. <laughs> that sounds so, great. Yeah. We like to end our podcast with uh, some a lightning round of questions or quick fire questions. Okay. Um, so I'm going to start with the first one. It's the only fill in the blank one among the questions. Okay. Okay. So mathematics is. Mathematics is creative. Hmm. Nice. What's the last book you read that you could not put down? Oh, I just read this book that's called, um, Leaving isn't the hardest part. It's about it's a memoir of a woman who grew up in a in a cult. Oh, interesting. Mm -hmm. So it yeah, mm -hmm. uh, I thought it was very interesting and engrossing. Great, and very wow. far from my experience. And I have to say that fits in to the fact that I like learning about people whose experience is very very different from mine. Mm -hmm. Where's a place that you really enjoy? I think I love to be at the beach. I'm not a big swimmer. I don't, I, I hate cold water and virtually all water is cold. <laughs> um, but, but being at the beach is just very peaceful mm -hmm. um, without necessarily swimming. <laughs> what is something that is on your desk that would surprise us? Ah, a mirror. Oh, and why? <laughs> to check that I don't look ridiculous before I have these kinds of things. Are you saying you have vanity? Is that what you're saying? <laughs> I don't think I have vanity, but I have hair that tends to stick out if I don't pay attention to it. Well, there was a big article in the New York Times about how plastic surgery has skyrocketed uh, during the pandemic year, because we're all looking at ourselves on Zoom and assessing right. our way yeah. too much we are. Yeah. Okay, our last rapid fire question is: What sound reminds you of home? Well, um, I don't know if this is what you want, but my husband plays the accordion, and if I ever hear the songs he plays, then that is important to me. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Like elsewhere, you know. I mean, if I hear them at home, that's nice too. But you know. <laughs> Very sweet. Well, we really appreciate the time you've spent with us, Erica. This has been great getting to talk to you and getting to know you a little bit more. Great. 
So Erica, we're going to be counting you in and our listeners. And so until next time, thanks for joining us. Okay, you're welcome. It was fun. Well, that was really fun talking with Erica. What did you uh, what did you take from that, Della? Well, I learned a number of things. First of all, I want to get my own personal refrain for when I'm feeling down and discouraged. I love the fact that she had the refrain from the time she was quote unquote little Erica. Mm-hmm. That I have math, I have to do well. It was just her path forward. Mm-hmm. Um, I love that she realized she was good at getting people to work first mm-hmm. in the co-op. And then later her colleagues recognized this reminds me how important it is to encourage our colleagues when we, cause a lot of times I think people can see things that we're good at that we can't see ourselves. Her colleagues mm-hmm. really underscored mm-hmm. this quality in her. And then of course she needs that exact quality to run the notices. Mm-hmm. And I love the fact that throughout her life, she is interested in different kinds of people. Um, she was talking about how it's reflected in her reading today, but it's really formed the foundation of her work with students in graduate school. She was friends with people across various disciplines. And of course, I loved uh, how important her family is to her, that she had a supportive husband when they went on the job market as a two-body group, uh, that he was just as supportive of her work as she was of his. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think you're so right. I think that the these connections that she's made with other people, they've not only enriched her life, but they have made it so that she can help um, propel some young mathematicians into um, into their careers. I think you know the more that we can spend time with others and and help uh, advance others, it also advances ourselves. So on that note, this is Del Indiana. Uh, we're counting you in. And until next time. Thanks. Count Me In with Del Indiana is produced by the talented Sam Dunnewald. Music is by Casey Fenster and the podcast image is by Victoria Robinson. Mm-hmm.